being patient with me. I don't. We don't do the clock thing in Africa. You'll have to forgive me. I, I have to remember. Y'all have permission, all the leadership, to do this at any point. And trust me, that's what they did at Willow Creek, and I just stopped. I said, okay, that's enough for now. And we met four times, so you can. I could always pick it up later. So, uh, but but forgive me. You know, we're we're simple people, and we don't have any distractions in there. So there's no television. There's no smartphone. There's no anything. So. I know this sounds crazy, but going to church is one of the most exciting things a person could do. That and funerals and weddings. So, so as a result, it's not uncommon for us to meet at 10 in the morning and, and stop at noon or 1 and eat something and go to 3 or 4 in the afternoon. And then we all get together and go share our faith the rest of the day. So uh, Saturdays is a big day for us. Uh, we, we enjoy that. We meet every Saturday and I teach on the Kingdom of God each Saturday. The only reason I came up here was to get a drink. I don't really do the pulpit thing. I teach under an orange tree about 80% of the time. Other than that, I'm probably in a banana grove. So, you know, let me do what I normally do. It'll be better for all of us, okay? Uh, what I want to talk to you about at this point is, is, is what do we share as the gospel? First of all, we do Luke 10 evangelism, as, as my brother shared a little bit earlier. Jesus personally trained the apostles and disciples on how to go out and share the faith. I'm not going to walk you all the way through Luke 10. I'm going to give you just enough to get you interested, okay? Why do you call it Luke 10 evangelism? Well, because in Matthew 10, and uh, also I believe in Matthew 8, Jesus was, uh, and also in Luke, Jesus had already sent the 12 out. And He gave them all these instructions. They went out and healed the sick, and they, they cast out devils, and gave this power, and all this stuff. And so everybody looks at this, and the first thing that goes through people's minds is, that's the apostles, I can't do that. So what I do is, I don't teach from that. I go to this other verse where Jesus sends out the 70. I tell people all the time, you know, people try to say missionaries are, are, are apostles, and I always just shake my head at that. I go, no, no, no. Jesus had the 12 apostles, and then there was these other guys, the 70. And I tell everybody, we're the other guys, okay? But he sent the other guys out with the same instructions. In fact, when they came back is when the one where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall into the earth when you guys were out there doing that, okay? But, so he gave instructions, and they were very specific. And instructions for this, I, I'm going to give them to you quickly, but I want you to imagine the implications if you would actually try to take this and make it a practical teaching because that's what I do. I literally get a guy by the arm and I say, I'm going to teach you how to do Luke 10 evangelism. And we literally go down the road two by two. I'm not talking about euthanisms. I'm not giving you a, a theory. I'm telling you, I take men by the hands and I walk down the street and I put this passage into effect and we use it and we do it the way Jesus did it and train this men to do it we share with them not how to get saved but the good news of the kingdom of God and we call them to do what? I know this sounds crazy guys but I call them to give up everything come and follow Jesus why would I do something so crazy? because Jesus called them to give everything and come and follow Jesus see I've decided that Jesus is a genius that God sent him and taught us these ways because I know this is, a, this is new news for a lot of people, but the reason God sent Jesus and the reason he taught Luke 10 
is because Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus said, my teachings came straight from the Father. And one of his teachings was Luke's 10 evangelism. We love to do crusades. We love to do giant meetings. We love to have, you know, in certain denominations, you know, they, 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 they wanted television evangelists and they wanted uh, big crusades and they wanted to do all these things to meet people. But when Jesus came straight from the Father, who's the exact representation of the Father, who's the glory and the radiance of the Father in flesh, the Word of God come flesh, what did He say? He said, oh, we're going to go out two by two and we're going to share with people. So I say that Jesus knows what He's talking about and I can tell you not from theory, but from practical experience that I have done this method and led thousands of people to come, myself and Mark Carrier, him in Kenya and Uganda, and me in Kenya and Tanzania. Thousands of people to come to become a disciple, not get saved. Anybody can get people in Africa to get saved. To, to, to come and, and to actually be a disciple and to come and follow Jesus. So that's what I'm going to talk about. So the first thing Jesus says is that I'm going to send you to where I'm fixing to go. So in other words, Jesus is going to send these guys out. He's given them assignment. But guess what He's going to do? He's going to come along behind them. Because you know what? When you're teaching people to do something, you've you got to follow up and make sure they're doing it right. See, Jesus isn't just giving them a method. Jesus is modeling discipleship. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came and He got baptized. He went out and preached. Spirit of God is on Him. He goes out and preaches. The kingdom of God is available repent and come and follow Jesus. So they've been watching Him do this. They've watched Him heal the sick. They've watched Him cast out demons. They've watched Him share the gospel of the kingdom of God. They've been baptizing people that He's been leading to the Lord so much more that they're doing more than John the Baptist was like a rock star prophet before Jesus started preaching. So they've watched Him do all these things. Now He's going to send them out now that He's modeled it. And they've listened to Him over and over again. See, He did it first. And then he's sending them out to do it. He doesn't send them along two by two. And he sends them to the cities and villages where he's going to go. Then he's going to follow up on what he's trained them to do. So this is, this is what we did. And so then when they go out, he tells them, he gives them some instructions. So let's just turn to Luke 10 together. And I'm going to hit this too fast for you to do much with. I hope I just get you excited and interested. Besides, I'm not teaching a method here. I'm, I'm, I'm teaching, this is Jesus' method. It's not mine. I just want you to entertain something. He knows what he's talking about. And if you do what Jesus said, I believe it will work. That's all I'm saying. Remember what I've told you. You say, hey, if this guy can do it, anybody can do it. All he's doing is what Jesus told us to do. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few, he says in, in uh, Luke 10. First thing he says then is therefore what? I love this part. This bunch of people out there now, Jesus, pray. And He tells you what to pray for. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And then He gives you all these instructions and then He sends them. I love the apostles one even better. He says, pray to God send people out. Okay, did you pray? Okay, now go. In other words, you're praying for God to send people because the harvest is plentiful. But He has every intention of sending you to the harvest. Everybody told to pray because the harvest is plentiful, he sent into the harvest, okay? So if you're on Jesus' team, that, that, that's part of your goal for him is to go out and do this very thing. So he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Verse 3. Now, go. Oh, he keeps it simple, doesn't he? 
See, they got tricked praying too. Just like me going to Africa. Pray about going. He tells them to pray for the harvest. Next thing you know, he sends them. That's the way it is sometimes. Don't carry money bag, traveling bag, sandals. Don't greet anyone along the way. Let's stop there. So people go, what's this got to do with me? And we don't use money bags. We don't use a staff. We don't use sandals. This is irrelevant to me. It's relevant to them. So how can it be relevant to us? Here's the, here's the deal. You don't need a bunch of stuff to go serve God. You know what I tell people is? You need a Bible. You need to know what you're going to say. And you, you don't need any money. I had an African guy tell me one time, he says, oh, who's going to fund this evangelism that you're talking about doing? I said, excuse me? He says, well, you're talking about this Luke 10 evangelism. Who's going to fund that? You know, obviously he was looking for the, uh, you know, the Westerner to come and put some money in their pocket. You know, we're going to be working for you doing this. And I said, well, if, if you ever um, touch your neighbor about Jesus? And he goes, yeah. And I said, how far did he live away from you? So he lived over in the next farm. And I said, how much did, uh, did uh, it cost you to walk over the farm? He said, it didn't cost you anything. I said, that's how much we pay. It don't cost me any, you anything to walk over there and tell him about Jesus, and I'm training you to walk over there and tell the other neighbor about Jesus. The beauty about this is you don't have to be a rich church. You don't have to spend money out of your budget. Jesus was living in a poor area teaching poor people how to go out and advance the kingdom of God, and they didn't need anything. We get tied up in the West. We think uh, even missionaries, they go over there and think, oh, we got a projector because we're going to show the, visit, the, the Jesus film and we need loudspeakers because we're going to play Christian music and, and the African pastors will tell you they need a big PA system to preach out of and all this stuff. No, we're just going to do Luke 10 Avengers. We don't need anything. And then he tells us there that, uh, that whatever house you enter, now that's interesting. You know, we call a lot of guys call this type of uh, evangelism personal peace evangelism. So you're gonna, uh, uh, in fact, some of the verses that you go out and you're looking for a personal peace. So you don't care, money back, traveling bag, whatever house you enter, say peace to this house. If a person of peace is there, that's why they call this personal peace evangelism. Your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the house, eating and drinking what they offer you, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house, and then we'll stop there. So, what's a person of peace? Well, it doesn't tell you what a person of peace is, but it kind of demonstrates it. A person of peace is somebody that when you go and they're, they're so interested in, in what you have to say, that apparently they've invited you in the house, and they're feeding you. And he says, when you find somebody like this, don't go to house to house. You know, I come from a Southern Baptist background, and we wanted our pelts. You know, you had to. How many people did you led to the Lord? I led four people to the Lord today. And how many people got saved that revival? 333. Well, that's nothing. Ours had 450. You know, it's like pelts, you know, a, a hunter's pelts or something. You know, you're collecting things. Well, Jesus wasn't into that, and he didn't train his people to do that. He wasn't interested in numbers. When you found somebody that's your person of peace, you stay with them and you begin to disciple them. In my personal experience, this is how it works. I literally walk up with somebody and I walk into them on their farm and we're not doing friendship evangelism. I'm not trying to, you know, what would you do if you stood before God today? You know, there's no trick to this because I'm not looking to get people saved and get a ticket to heaven. Remember, we started this praying and we're praying for God to send workers. And now we're going out, and I'm going to show you some amazing things because according to Jesus in this, He sent them out with an anointing. He tells them to leave a blessing 
if the people respect him, and to take the blessing back if they don't. He tells them to heal the sick if they're there, or cast out down demons. And if you leave, to literally dust off your feet and leave. And he says it'll be more, it'll be better for Sodom and more than for the villages or people that turn you away. So what do we make of all this? I mean, you can read this whole thing and it's real easy to read and go, that's a bunch of information, a bunch of stuff doesn't have anything to do with me. But I came to a different conclusion. What if genius is a genius? And he knows exactly what he's talking about. So how do I put that into, how do I make that work in a modern situation? Me as a Westerner going out to a tribe that's not in this context. And so I would just walk up and say, my name's Glenn, I'm here with Bob. We're out telling people about the kingdom of God and Jesus would you like to hear about it? And if they say yes, we sit down and we begin persuading them, like Paul said, about the kingdom of God and Jesus. There's no trick. There's no, I'm here for one thing and do the other. I'm not trying to become your buddy so two years from now I can lead you to Jesus. I'm straight up. And if you tell me no, I am perfectly okay with that because guess what that means? You're not my personal peace. My bad. Now I'm going to be this guy. And I go and I go and I go. I, you know, we get so caught up, we gotta leave everybody to Jesus. But she had some objections, and I couldn't overcome the objection. I, I need to try harder. I need to stay more. No, she's not your personal peace. Go to the next one. We spend all our time with people that are giving us the most trouble. They're not your personal peace. You do this, and you go to the next one. God says that He sent a blessing with you. If she'll receive you in her home, if she'll listen to the good news, you're going to bring a blessing with you. God says so. There's a peace that you're going to bring there. If they reject it, it's going to leave. And that's the scariest thing I've ever heard. Somehow, according to Jesus, he who gives you a drink of water gets a prophet's reward. He who receives you, Jesus said, receives me. When you you bring a blessing with you, and something bad happens if they reject it, but it might as well happen because eternity. God says when He or Jesus said when He sent these people out to preach the gospel and heal the sick, and we go, oh, I can't do that. And I said, well, God's word says that when we go out and we're going to share, there was an anointing that went with it. And I urge you, I don't care where you stand and what you believe on healing, whether you're a cessationist or whether or not you're a full-blown charismatic, I don't care what your beliefs are, I urge you to do it like Jesus said. I don't care if you've never prayed for anyone to be healed in your life. Take it from me. You go out, and if someone's sick, and they say, would you pray for somebody, go and lay hands on them and pray for them. The first time I did it in Africa, I went to a Muslim village. Everyone said they didn't want to talk to me. I went with a guy and I was showing him how to share his faith. I couldn't even get a Muslim to listen to us. And I went all through this village. Everybody's doop, 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 doop. And finally a lady taps me on the shoulder and says, uh, I've heard when Christians pray for people that God answers your prayers. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she says, could you come with me? So we went walking. I'm like, I wonder what this is all about. I go into this house of this rather affluent Muslim by, by those standards. This was a very poor village. It was so poor, the children played naked in the village. And then when strangers walked up, the parents would put clothes on them because they all had one pair of clothes and you needed them to last for years. So what you would do is they played naked until people would come into the area that didn't know them. And then you would put clothes on them because it's immodest for strangers to see your children naked. But 
Everybody else is pretty much related anyway, brothers, uncles, and cousins. So the kids played naked. So you, it's nothing to come into a village and all the kids are running around. All that's a sign of is they don't know you're there yet. They'll put clothes on them in just a minute. Just give them some time. They know it's not good for kids to run around naked. They'll get clothes on them. You're just not family. Everybody else around there is family, see. Uh, so anyway, so I, I go into this house and there's a lady laying on a cement floor and she's laying there. I said, what's wrong? They said, oh, she's paralyzed. Okay. And it uh, turned out that her husband had left her and she'd stopped eating and she hadn't moved for eight days and she wanted to die and all this stuff and they couldn't get her up, couldn't put her up, and, and now she couldn't get up. And so they said, uh, and so I'm here with this guy that's really a kind of a Pentecostal black guy, pastor, that's, that's uh, very strong into the fact that he wants me to come to his church because to him it's all about his church building. It's all about the, he wants a red roof and he wants a lot of money and, and he's doing the prosperity gospel thing. And I'm trying to show him a different way to do things. So I'm trying to show him instead of inviting people to church, let's go out and tell people about Jesus. So that's what I'm doing with him. Well, man, he's all about praying for the sick. Which I was really glad he was with me because, you know, I hadn't done a whole lot of that kind of thing. And so this is what happens. So he, he, uh, uh, he gets in there and takes this mosquito net that was around her and he pulls it back. And he says, all right, Glenn, we're going to lay hands on him and pray for him. And I'm like, I'm kind of scared. I mean, what's going to happen? What happens if we pray for the sick? She don't get healed. All these Muslims are crying around the door. They're looking in the windows. And I'm like, I mean, seriously, this is what I'm thinking. And he looked down at this Muslim, little Muslim lady and he said, if you'll only believe, you can receive and you'll be healed. And I'm sitting there thinking, what do you mean she's Muslim? What's she going to believe in? You hadn't even told her anything. And I'm sitting there going, oh, this is a train wreck. You know, This is never going to work out. Because I'm thinking, she needs to hear the word and put her faith in Jesus and then she can believe Jesus. And you know, what do you mean if she'll only believe? And he said, if you'll believe that Jesus will heal you, you can get up and walk out of this house today. He said, will you believe? And she said, I want to believe. And he said, let it be to you according to your faith. And man, we laid hands on her and we prayed for about five minutes. I was praying hard. And we got through praying and he grabbed her by the hand and jerked her up. Just jerked her up. And of course, if you go back and read about it, Peter grabbed and jerked the guy up to him and John did. Jesus pulled the guy up one time. And you realize it wasn't uncommon for him back then. You know, you hold your cripple ground, I'll pray for you, and I'm going to jerk you up. I mean, I hope he's healed. <laughs> Boom. I mean, you imagine, if, if you, I mean, you got to be pretty sure a guy's healed if you're going to jerk him off the ground because it's pretty embarrassing to jerk him up and he collapses in a heap again, wouldn't it? So this guy raises down and jerks her up, and she lands there, and she's unstable. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at her, and she's looking at us. We all start praising the Lord, and we walk out of the house. Well, that, all those Muslims that didn't want to hear about Jesus pulled up a chair. And we shared the gospel. We led two families to the Lord and we started a house church in the village. So, you're talking to a guy that never seen anybody healed from me praying for him, but we just went, you know, the Bible said do it. So what we did? It's the good news. You're sick. So, I, all I can tell you is I did my part and God did His part and we play in the house church in the Muslim village. No apologetics, no arguing. You can't argue with somebody who got up and walked. Mark Carrier, my mentor in Kenya, went into a village. Similar thing happens. He goes there. Nobody wants to talk to him. Somebody says, would you pray for my father-in-law? Turned out it was the imam of the mosque father 
This guy had had multiple strokes and he was dying. Doctor said there wasn't anything they could do for him. Mark prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for him. He said nothing happened to this guy. And the imam said, well, man, thanks for trying. I appreciate you praying for my dad. Uh, you know, thank you. You know, no hard feelings. Shook hands. Mark went about his way. Comes back, going through that same village. This poor either one of us had a vehicle and he's walking through a village. Some guy comes up, drapes his arm around him and hugs him and starts kissing on him and loving on him. Mark's like, you know, Mark's not a touchy-feely guy. You know, he's like, oh, what's going on here? And then some mom walks up and he goes, oh, that's my dad. Said, you prayed for him when you were here about a month ago. We've been waiting on you to come back. So he started getting better the next day. And he says, now he's running around like crazy. Doctor says, it's me. And uh, what happened? Mark plants a house church here in the village. In fact, the imam invited everybody to come hear Mark speak and said, "This is, you know, I'm an imam, I believe in Allah. This guy prayed for my dad and he's healed. I'm getting out of the way. And that's what happened. So I'm telling you these things work. You do what you want to do. So I just wanted to share with you about Luke 10 evangelism. It's God's way, God's plan. Jesus taught it. The apostles did it. If you don't believe me, go to the book of Acts and, and read about Paul. First Paul goes out with Barnabas. Then Barnabas goes out with Mark. Then, then Paul goes out with Silas. They always went out two by two. Well, you think it's a coincidence? Most people believe that Barnabas was one of the seven. Did you know that? He was one of the seven. And that's why he was around. You know, he was the first one that sold his land and brought the proceeds in the book of Acts. Remember that? That was, that was the same guy Barnabas. So he was one of the seven. So when he got Paul and brought Paul to the church in Antioch and made Paul one of the leaders and elders of the church and then they went out they sent them out the church sent them out two by two and both of them the rest of the whole career when you follow them around in Acts they're going out two by two sending people two by two praying for the sick preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God exactly like Jesus taught okay so there's no mystery to what they did in the early church either okay that's all I want to say about that I just want to share enough about that to get you excited Get you thinking about, gosh, is this really something that will work? Maybe Jesus knows what he's talking about. Just a theory. Maybe he's the greatest evangelist there ever was. Maybe he brought the best method for me and you to share our faith in every voice. So now the last question, this is the last thing I'm going to talk about, and then we're going to answer some questions. Is they went around talking about the gospel of the kingdom of God. In fact, everywhere Jesus went, he talked about the good news. Let me give you some stats here just to kind of whet your appetite. The Bible says, uh, excuse me, but when we count uh, the number of times Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, you hear people say, oh, Jesus mentioned the kingdom of God about a hundred times in the gospel. Well, I got curious about that. People say things all the time. So I went back and I literally counted all the verses. And there's 274 times the kingdom of God is mentioned in the New Testament. There's 172 times the kingdom of heaven is mentioned. That does not include the kingdom of our son, the kingdom of, uh, uh, or, and then his phrases like his kingdom. Uh, so anyway, the kingdom of God was obviously the major theme of Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Luke 4, he was asked one time when he was out preaching the gospel, they said, uh, Jesus, don't leave. You know, he's healing the sick, he's teaching, he's preaching. And Jesus said, I believe it was in 423, I may be off on that, is he said that I, I must leave and go and preach the gospel of the kingdom in other cities. And then he says, that is why I was sent here. So Jesus' stated purpose was to come and preach 
the good news of the kingdom of God. I, he, so he preached the kingdom of God the whole time through the Bible, the whole time through Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and the Gospels it's recorded. And then a lot of people say, yeah, Glenn, but that was like when he was on earth, his earthly ministry. It's not for now. You know, once he died, we got a different Gospel. And that, that Gospel is preaching about Jesus dying for us and being raised from the dead. The only problem is that after Jesus died and He rose from the grave, the first thing it says in the book of Acts, okay, first thing is Jesus is saying He's going out to preach the good news of the kingdom. The last thing is He gives us a great commission to go out and preach the good news of the kingdom. First thing in Acts, Jesus is raised from the dead and He's teaching them 40 days it says. So surely now He's going to introduce this new Gospel, the Gospel of the Atonement, the Gospel of the Cross. The Gospel of Jesus rose. says, no, for 40 days He taught them about what? The Kingdom of God. So the book of Acts starts out talking about the Kingdom of God. The last thing written in the book of Acts is for two years, Paul had people come into his house and he persuaded them about the Kingdom of God in Jesus. The first evangelist that was sent out in Acts 8 when Philip got sent out, he said he went everywhere preaching the kingdom of God and healing the sick. Paul said, it says that Paul went into the synagogues and he taught the Jews there persuading them about the kingdom of God and Jesus. Paul said, my conscience is clear because I went around to all the churches around Ephesus and I preached the kingdom of God to all of you guys. Paul talked about the kingdom of God. In fact, what's so funny is people go, yeah, but he doesn't talk about it very much in his letters. He's writing to save people. Every time Jesus is talking to the lost, he's telling them about the kingdom of God and Jesus. That was the, that was the teachings geared towards the lost. Well, why is that? Well, first of all, there's two different people, two groups of people we've got to share with. Jesus had a group of people that were looking for the kingdom. They were looking for the Messiah. Paul's groups of people were not looking for a kingdom. And they didn't even know they were supposed to be a disciple. So you got a little bit of difference. We're more like group B. But let's talk about both groups real quick. First of all, what were the Jews looking for? Now you and I have always been told the same thing. Oh, they were looking for an earthly kingdom. You know, they were going to kick the Romans out and then they were going to run... This new Messiah would come and after he beat the Romans up and got rid of Israel would be like it was in the good old days. Well, there are some Jews that believe that. But that's like saying a football game is about green grass. I mean, that's like... The most insignificant thing about a football game is that there's green grass. In fact, you can go to Boise, Idaho and they play on some ugly purple grass. But anyway, it just doesn't matter. There was so much more they were looking for and part of that is, is, is we've got to understand when we share our gospel message. Do you understand something? The Jews believe there's something wrong in this world. And I contend Jesus and the apostles knew there was something wrong in this world. As a matter of fact, the Bible, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Paul calls Satan the God of this world. Okay, so there's something wrong in this world. How'd that happen? 
How did Jesus come to the conclusion that Satan is the ruler of this world? Something has happened. The world started out in one condition. The Jews believed God had created the heavens and the earth and it was good. And everything is corrupted. Everything is messed up now. And when Messiah comes and He brings the kingdom, it's going to be just like it was and the way God intended it to be. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a lot of details, but I, I know you guys know your Bible and I don't have to. So I'm going to draw a picture for you here. And I wish I had brought my old New Testament because I'd love to walk you down the road. Let me walk you through Genesis, just the first chapter real quick, and then I'm going to wrap this whole thing up. In Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. He said, let us make God in our own image. And He says in this verse, let's give them dominion over the whole earth. Then God comes down, He creates man, and He literally it says, you know, everything else God had spoken. He spoke to heaven, spoke to earth. He says God planted a garden. And then God puts Adam there. He gives him a job. He gives him food to eat. He gives him a wife. And not only does he do those things, but he also gives him responsibility. In fact, he even tells Adam, you're going to name all the animals, and Adam, whatever you call them, that's going to be their name. I mean, he delegated to Adam to get to choose what everything would be named. I'm like, wow, Adam's really going to rule and reign with God. This is amazing. And so, here we go. Adam, I want to point some things out to you. Adam had never had a daddy. He'd never had a mother. He was the only human being he'd ever seen. Adam did not know how to be a human being. God We think of somebody being created in the image of God, like, oh, well, he can think like God, or he's got free will of God. Actually, we don't understand Hebrew. God basically is saying, I am going to make man, and he is going to image me in all the earth. He's given dominion. You are the representative of God. We would carry out God's will, we would carry out God's way. That's why God and Jesus could say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The very definition of the kingdom of God is that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what was happening in the garden. So God's there. The tree of life is there. The, the rivers are flowing through it. The garden's there. God's providing everything. And man's been given one command not to eat from the tree of the fruit of good, uh, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to move through this way too quick, but I want you guys to hear what i got to say. And so here's what happens is God, man sins. Now man's been given dominion. How'd Satan get it? Jesus said he's the ruler of this world. Paul says Satan's the God of this world. How'd that happen? Man had been given dominion and man was supposed to rule and reign with God. God was walking with man in the garden. He's literally personally training Adam. Adam doesn't even know how to be a human being. You don't know anything. God's walking and personally discipling in all these things. He disobeys God. The Bible says in Romans 16 that whoever you obey, you become their slave. It is my proposal to you that the dominion that rightly belonged to you and I as agents and imagers of God in all the earth was by default transferred as, we, as men became slaves of Satan. The dominion of God was moved. I have no other explanation. How did Satan become the, the ruler of the world and the God of this age when we were to be God's agent and rulers in this earth. I have no other explanation for it. But look at what happened. So when God was running things, we had the food, we had the tree of life, we had everything, and God said it was good. Man sins, he's put out of the garden, he can no longer walk with God because of sin and separation from God. And what happens next? You know, we tend to 
look at these little verses in Genesis. And I want to back up and look at this big picture with you real quick over about five minutes. And here it goes. The first family. Adam don't know how to be a daddy. Eve don't know how to be a mother. They don't even know how to be a human being. And they raise a family and the first things that happen is they murder each other. What's it look like when man decides to go his own way? Adam decides and Eve decides, I'm going to decide. I'm going to choose good and evil. Now the Bible said that when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Satan said you can be like God, knowing good from evil. You notice nobody said anything about choosing the right one. They just know there's good and evil. They have no wisdom, no insight, and no ability to know even what's good for them. They don't even know how to be a human being. They've never seen them. Until God made Eve, Adam never seen them. Until Eve was made by God, she'd never seen anything either. They're totally ignorant. They don't know how to do any of these things. So the first offspring of the first family of the first people that ever turned their back on God's will and ways and the boys murder each other, this is how the human race starts. I don't know if we dwell on that very much. This is the beginning of mankind. Murder. A little while later, it goes on. The next story is Laban. I mean, what's God trying to tell us here? You get kicked out of the garden, and the first story is what? Murder. The next story is Laban. He said, oh, God put a little bitty curse over here. I'm going to take vengeance way beyond the curse. Violence enters among people that aren't related. A little bit later, so much wickedness has entered the earth that God regrets that He ever created man. They become so wicked. The sons of God see the women... Uh, the daughters of men and something tragic happens there and God floods the entire earth. The next story, that's three stories into the Bible. The fourth story is, surely mankind's learned their lesson. They've gotten rid of everybody. Now they'll go and fill the world. Now they'll go and multiply. Now they'll go and hold dominion. What happens? They go, now nah, we're not going to scatter out and do that stuff. We're going to pull all together. We're going to make this tower. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. And God goes, I've had it. He baffles their language. You know, the, I love in the story it says, we're going to make a name for ourselves. And the next story after that is God goes and gets his own people. He goes and gets Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a name. Instead of mankind making themselves. Y'all don't, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but the Jews consider there were three falls, not one. There was a fall in the garden where sin and death in Fall number one. Fall number two is when the sons of God took wives and the daughters of men. That was fall number two. And fall number three was the Tower of Babel. They believed that God, that's the point, because remember they're going to choose Abraham, that's the point when God divorced the nations and said, my portion, Israel's going to be my portion. And He chose His own. In fact, they actually believed the nations were turned over to the other host of heaven. They're not fallen guys yet. They believed that actually happened later. I'm not telling you to believe it. I'm just telling you some things the Jews believe about us crazy Gentiles. They actually believe it to Babylon. When it was over, Abraham was chosen and that was God's portion. And all the Gentile nations were being ruled over by these hosts of heaven that later got corrupted. If you'll notice, it was much later before they were ever worshiping other gods. And they believe that this host of heaven, which weren't necessarily bad guys, decided they wanted to be worshipped and be like God. Just, just a little trivia there, but it, it's interesting that they point to these three things and that was the beginning of the corruption of nations. There's several verses that talk about how that mankind was spread out according to their nations and their borders were allotted to them. And there's even verses that say, and the ho different ones from the host of heaven were allotted to them. So they actually had 
each nation has like a ruler kind of thing. A bunch of these guys are corrupted. Probably remember in Daniel, when Michael comes to talk to Daniel and he said he had to get in a big fight over Persia. You know, he's fighting these things. It would be the kind of thing that there's, there's these powers that are over these nations now. And not, not to get off the point, but it's, it's interesting that Jews think these three points are the big falls. And these are the three big stories in the Old Testament. And then God turns around and He starts everything over for Abraham. But this is what, what God is saying in Genesis is, I had a plan. I was going to walk with man. The tree of life would be there. The river's going to run through it. Uh, you're going to be my people. I'm giving you dominion over the earth. And God's walked with man and man walked with God. And I began to study the kingdom of God and I'm looking at this stuff and I kept reading over and over again about it. And, and I was uh, 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 studying and reading everything Jesus said and I got to Matthew 24 one time and I'm reading and I, and I read across this verse I'd never really noticed before. And in this verse, you guys know this verse by heart. It's the sheep and the goat. And Jesus is talking and He says to this first group, He says, he said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom, now listen to me, prepared for you at the foundation of the earth. And I'd always read that thinking about this is judgment, loving the least of these, you know, feeding the hungry and giving drink to the thirsty. That's what always drew me. So that's always my thing. Is to, is to, we got to take care of the least of these, our brothers. You can see that in Africa in the work that I showed you today. But here's what I saw in this verse. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. This verse says that the kingdom was prepared for me at the foundation of the earth. And I grabbed my Bible up. And I turn to the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1 1, and it says, God created the heavens and the earth. Wait. Wait a minute. So God created the kingdom and prepared it for me in Genesis 1. And Revelations, when I get to the end, I remembered something. The Bible starts and there's a tree of life. The Bible starts and God is walking with man. The Bible starts and the rivers run through it. The Bible starts and everything is good. The Bible starts and there's no sin. The Bible starts and there's no death. The Bible starts and there's no curse. And then I turn to Revelation. And a city comes down out of heaven. And there's a tree of life in the city. And, and, man, and God walks with man again. And it says a river runs through the tree of life and it's crystal clear. God takes the curse away. He says there's no more death. There's no more sin. There's no more sorrow. And God walks with man. As a matter of fact, we don't need the sun and the moon anymore. And I realize something. The kingdom of God started in Genesis 1.1 and the kingdom of God ends in God's never given up on His original plan. It was God's plan to walk with man and for all things to be made right. Over and over again, there's prophecies in the Old Testament talking about there's going to come a day when the wolf lays down with the lamb. It's going to come a day when the rich are cast down and the poor raised up. The Jews saw these prophecies and they said, look, the Jews all believe there's something wrong with this world. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not the way God meant it to be this way. And you and I, when we go out and share, we have an answer for every question in human need. One of the biggest questions we have in Christianity is, how can God be good and bad things happen in the world? And people do cartwheels trying to answer that question. You know, if God's good, how can there be bad things? I'll tell you what. It was God's intention that everything would be good. It was God's intention. There'd be no sickness. There'd be no sorrow. There'd be no death. But man chose to go his own way. 
As I shared with you before, the first result was murder. That's how humanity starts out without God and it's not gotten any better. The good news of the kingdom is, is this is the way God started things out and this is God's ultimate plan for man. When Jesus came on the earth, He wasn't going around healing the sick because He's just a nice guy and wants to heal the sick. He was reversing the curse. There's not supposed to be sick people. I preach to a room full of people and they're sick and they're crippled and they're dying and they got AIDS. The life expectancy where I preach is is 52 years old. People say, oh, how's COVID doing in Africa? I say, well, most people die of COVID, as you know, are, are like 60 and 70 and 80 years old. Oh, that's true, that's true. Yeah, so we can't live that long. We're dead before COVID. So we don't have a COVID problem because we're too busy dying of malaria and typhoid, HIV, intestinal viruses. We don't have any good water. And our women are bent over because of osteoporosis because we've got so much fluoride in our water. They put a little in your water and it cleans your teeth. We have a million times that much naturally occurring in our water. So it eats our bones up and gives us cancer. Okay, so what I preach is it's not supposed to be this way. This isn't God's will. This is not God's plan. God created the earth and it's good. Man decided to follow Satan and it corrupted everything. I'm inviting you to repent and come and follow Jesus. You don't have to be a part of this world where they prey on each other and they're starving and they need to be healed and they've got disease and they've got sickness where men abuse their wives and wives walk out on their family where there's sin and death and all the politicians lie. Everything wrong with this world is because we turned our back on God. I have good news. Good news of the kingdom of God. You can repent and come and follow Jesus and enter the kingdom of God. And as God's ambassador, we talked today, we're ambassadors of God. As God's ambassadors, I go out and I reverse the curse everywhere I go. You want to know where the kingdom of God is? It's right here. Let me show you how. Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in your name, I'm there. Let me tell you something. Where Jesus is, my friend, the kingdom is there. Jesus said, when I cast out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God is upon you. He went around and he fed the sick with loaves of fishes, excuse me, pieces of bread and loaves of fishes. Everywhere Jesus went, he was reversing the curse. He healed the sick, he's pushing back disease. He raised the dead, he's pushing back death. When he uh, told the storm to, to be calm, you know, people wonder, they say, oh, God's in control of everything. Why did God have to rebuke the storm? Because it's out of control. Nature's been corrupted. Paul said that nature's waiting on the sons of God to come back and take their rightful place because the whole world has been corrupted. Everything that is wrong, every problem there is, is because this world is under the sinful domain of Satan. And I invite men to repent, surrender to Christ, be born again. If you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And if you're not born of the Spirit and the water, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And if you don't obey Jesus and follow Him, He'll cut you off the vine and you won't make it to the kingdom of God. So what we're preaching and what we're teaching is, is the kingdom of God is available to all of us. And I'm not extending it to people. And every time that I feed the poor, every time I rescue a widow, I'm expanding the kingdom of God with all these things. I don't look at these as do-good projects. I have people go, oh, you got a do-good ministry over in Africa. I say you're always helping Africa. I say, I'm not doing no do-good project. I'm advancing the kingdom of God. Man, who cares about a do-good project? I don't want to do good project. I want the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. 
And everywhere I go, and everywhere you go, and everywhere we go and we love our neighbor, and we love like none other, and we help people like no one else helps, and we serve like no one else serves, when we do these things that Christ calls us to do, we transform everyone around us and we're modeling the kingdom of God. We're not supposed to be people that show up to church on Sunday, hear a good sermon, and we read our Bible and we pray a little bit. We are agents of the kingdom of God. I had decided a long time ago to say no to everything in my life that doesn't advance the kingdom of God. One of the reasons I dispose of a lot of business interests and things in my life because I knew I can't do what God's called me to do and chase after my career anymore. I can't do what God's called me to do and chase after money anymore. I can't haul eight widows around this porch. I bought me a big old Lincoln Continental, big usual. Man, I could put ten widows in and I bought 40 bags of groceries. I got me a kingdom car. Now I do work for the kingdom of God. I restructured my whole life so that I might do the things that God had called me to do. Now I'll give you a little, little piece there and a little taste of that. But I want you to understand that when I preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, I tell them it's good news. You're in the kingdom of Satan now. Everything around you is destroyed. Everything around you is corrupt. The Bible says the whole world is deceived by Satan. Three different times in the New Testament. The whole world is deceived. And it's waiting on you and I to come and tell them the truth. The good news of the kingdom of God. First, you've got to give them the bad news. They're in the kingdom of Satan. Now, that, that message resonates in Africa because everybody believes in witchcraft, believes in demons, and live in fear. They want to get out. Over here, it's a little different setting. But they do know there's something wrong. Everybody knows this world is in a horrible state of mind and the answer is Jesus and His kingdom. But you and I have to bring it and we have to model it. People have got to look at this church. They've got to look at your family. They've got to look at the way that you live your life and say, I'm going to tell you something. I know this sounds crazy, guys, but I believe it. You should be living proof Jesus rose from the dead. You know what people should say about you? You can't love like that. You can't live like that. You can't serve like that unless Jesus is real. God must be real. Look at the way this church lives. Look at the way they sacrifice. Look at what they do for others. Look at the way they love each other. What did they say in the early church? Oh, how they love one another. Why do you think in the, everybody says, oh, we want to be like a New Testament church. We want to be an apostolic church. And you know, and that's all great and that's all sounds really good. Why do you think they shared everything? Why do you think they did that? They were reversing the curse, man. How can I have two jackets when my brother has one? You just can't do it. Not if I love him like me. It's not an option. You know, I sat in a room one time and I and this will be my last thing I'll say, and I'm going to let you guys ask a question. I sat in a room one time with, with a guy, one of my heroes. He's planted house churches in Pakistan, planted house churches in Afghanistan. Uh, amazing guy. His name's Joe Jones. And uh, Joe was talking to an imam, a guy that had been a terrorist, a guy that tried to blow himself up on the Israeli border, a guy that had fought in the Sudanese war, had murdered and raped Christians, and he'd come to Jesus. We called him Imam Hussein. Everybody, he liked to be called Paul. <laughs> but anyway, they're sitting at the table and, and it was a very sober conversation. And there was another imam sitting behind him and Joe was saying, no, no, no. I told you guys three months and that's it. And I'm sitting there going, 
seemed like a heavy meeting. I, I had to be at this missionary conference. I was kind of doing the fly on the wall thing, you know. I'd been in Africa about three weeks, and these guys are all heavyweights, you know. These are the real deals. Been over there 28 years, you know, and got all these. Everybody he led the Lord was Muslim. I mean, this guy was unbelievable to me. He was a, we used to call him the Indiana Jones of missionaries because he went where nobody got. All the time, he went where nobody got. God been held by uh, the Taliban got him three times. Al-Shabaab got him twice. I could tell you stories about this guy all day long. But so anyway, so he's sitting there, and, and, and I realized something was going on with money, so finally he gets up and leaves the meeting, and I, I just kind of slid over there, and I'm talking to this guy, mom, that liked to be called Paul, and I said, what's going on, Paul? And he said, oh, he said you know, we, we, we find these Muslim women, and we find these Muslim men that have come to Christ, and they're running and hiding, or their husbands throw them out. See, if you're a man, uh, you're a Muslim man, and you got a wife and ten kids, which is not uncommon in Somalia, for example, then what you do is, your wife, you find out she's come to Christ, is that what you do is, is you take all the older children that can help her away, and you put an infant in her arm, and then you give her a two-year-old, and you drive her out in the middle of the slums of Nairobi, and you dump her on the side of the road, and you know that things are so bad, if she doesn't get raped, or she doesn't get robbed, and she doesn't go hungry, she'll come back to Islam and to her senses. And that's what you do. And there was a sister that loved Jesus, and she would go find them, and she'd bring them to Paul, and Paul would run to Joe, and Joe guaranteed anybody they found like that, he'd pay their rent for three months. There's a problem, though, is that when you can't read or write, and you don't speak Swahili, and you don't speak any Kenyan, you don't speak any English, and you get put in a room for three months, and you get a little bit of food, what's supposed to happen in the three months? I mean, did you get a job skill in the meantime? Did you go to university? What if your husband left you with six kids? What, how are you going to work anyway? You can't do anything. And so, and then I, the other guy sitting behind him was a new mom. He'd been chased out of Ethiopia. They were looking for him to kill him. Because he was leading so many Muslims to Christ. He was an incredible apologetics guy. Actually, getting online and on the radio, debating with imams all over the world. This guy was intellectually just in another class by himself. And so I'm sitting here with these guys, and they're telling me that Joe's going to quit paying the rent, and they've got to find their own way. Now, listen, there's some wisdom on that. People need to get on their own feet. I'm not against that at all. But... So I'm sitting there listening to him, and, and uh, so they're basically either going to find a way to pay the old rent or they're going to all get kicked out. So I sit down and talk to him, and you know, I'm a guy that used to publish magazines, you know, so I sit there and I told him, and I had this little Facebook page. Back then I didn't have about a thousand Facebook friends. And so I wrote on there, I went on Facebook, and I took some pictures of some of these women and a couple of the guys, and I posted on Facebook, and what I said was, and I told uh, Paul before I left, I said, let me tell you something. I know Joe's a great guy. Joe's from South Africa. Joe's from America. I mean, I'm from the UK. But I said, I know Christians in America. And I said, I guarantee you, when they hear these Muslim women are, are abandoned under bridges, when they hear this guy's running for his life while radical Muslims are trying to kill him, I said, we, I'll write a story. And I said, Americans will respond to it. And they did. And I had people come and says, Glenn, but how are you going to do this? How can you take care of all of them and everything else? Or how you, you can't help everybody. And then we can't. But everybody God brings in our life, I feel like 
this way sometimes. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. But you run into a situation sometimes it's so bad and you can let it go or you can do something about it. And I, I, I never will forget there was a, a thing one time in a movie where a guy made the comment, I'm sure it was a tough guy war movie, because the guy made the comment about something that was going to happen and the guy said, not on my watch. And I, I was sitting there across the table from this imam that called himself Paul and I said, nobody's getting kicked out because they came to Jesus. And nobody's going to get massacred in the street because they, they, get, they can't pay the rent anymore. Not on my watch. So I said, you take them to Joe for the first three months and at the end of that, if you can't do anything else, you bring them to me. And I said, we're, we're not going to let this happen. And so that began my ministry among radical Islam. And, uh, which I no longer do, by the way. I, I work in moderate Islam now. I'm not in the middle of Al-Shabaab anymore, so I'm not in any kind of danger whatsoever, but I used to be. And, uh, but I wanted to share that with you because that was just something that... Uh, uh, that was another one of those transformational moments for me about making a decision about that in the kingdom of God. Uh, I, I wanted to stop there. I hope I gave you enough of a glimpse of the gospel of the kingdom of God. I actually teach on the kingdom of God all the time. I was just in Willow Creek Mennonite Church in Franklin. I talked three days on the kingdom of God. And we actually walked through and I actually gave them the kingdom of God gospel presentation start to finish. So I've got some of that stuff that I can make available to you, uh, including a, a track light piece of material that we used to. And I'll, uh, your leadership, if they're interested in that, we can talk about that and I can make that available to you as well. I wanted to stop now. I've given you guys way too much information, I know. And some of you are probably tired of listening to me too. But I, I want to give you a chance to ask me some questions. You may want to ask me some from the video. Really, there's no... I'll answer any questions you have. The average intellect guy, not particularly smart, not particularly bright, not particularly gifted, or any of these things, and none of that really matters. Because uh, I want you to leave here today saying, if this guy can do this, anybody can do it. You know what I'm saying? If I can do that, then I feel like I'm successful today. So there's two things going on in my life. I started going, I got involved in a church plant to where everybody in the church had been in the mission field. And that was kind of weird. I mean, I had the occasional mission speaker come speak like we are here today. But I mean, the guy that started this had been a missionary in Japan that started this little church. And he was actually leaving to go do mission work somewhere else. And he brought in another pastor that had been a, been a, a very young guy, by the way, that had been a missionary for two years in Russia and, and for uh, eight years in Brazil. And then everybody else that was in this little church plant when I came all did these short-term mission trips. And I never met any. I never even heard of a short-term mission trip. So I didn't know anything. Uh, and so I started going to this church and I realized everybody there routinely shared their faith. And this is a Southern Baptist church. And uh, so these, But these people were very committed. I mean, they, they, their idea of a vacation was to get on a plane and, and fly like these people do to Haiti or fly to Brazil or fly to Africa or fly to Poland. This was their idea of a vacation. That was not my idea of fun. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, I, I worked hard. I worked a lot of hours. My idea of a vacation, and this is going to show you the kind of Christian I was, my idea of a vacation always involved the beach and there would be margaritas. I mean, that's just, you know, that was just the way it was. It wasn't a vacation. 
In fact, I got invited to go to a short-term mission trip, and I very sheepishly asked the pastor if there would be a beach and an opportunity for margaritas. And he said, absolutely not. And I went, well, I'm not going, you know. I'm not interested in that kind of thing. It's just, you know, I work hard, and, and my vacation time is me time kind of deal. Well, these people didn't do it that way. Their vacation time was time they could go and tell somebody about Jesus. And I was like, yeah, I remember loving Jesus like that. When I was 16 and 17 years old, I was on fire for Jesus. I told everybody about Jesus. But, you know, I just gone through life and had lost that. And so I remembered it. So we started doing a Bible study at my church, and my pastor was coming, this missional pastor. And I asked him, I said, man, I don't even remember how to tell people about Jesus anymore. Can you help me? And he so you know, he thought I wanted instructions, so he got a piece of paper and out and he's writing it down and I'll and I'll dutifully watch and okay, this is how he shares Jesus and everything. But I'm going, no, no, no. You tell everybody about Jesus everywhere you go. You have this passion for telling people about Jesus. I don't have that anymore. Where do I get that? And uh, so anyway, he introduced me to this organization. It's called Impact Ministries in Memphis, Tennessee. They work in the two poorest zip codes in America that aren't on an um, Indian reservation. And at the time, the, those two zip codes in Memphis made Memphis the number one murder capital of the world when I was working in there. And it was only because of two zip codes. Neither one of them were more than five or ten square miles, either one of them. But that's how bad drugs and everything else was in this area, and that's the area we went into. And this ministry, what they were doing was is they were giving groceries to people that were very poor, and they had to pass certain criteria to come in. But while they were there waiting to get their groceries, there'd be a bunch of people sitting over at the side, and then, and then the MC kind of guy would get all their information and say, now you see those guys over there? He said, if you want somebody to pray for you or to pray with you or you want to talk about God, they're here to talk to you about it, but I'm going to get you groceries. And so it would, but it would take like an hour or two because we had so many people. And so you could either sit there in a chair all day or we would go and get tables and, and, and if you wanted to, you kind of raise your hand and they would bring them in one or two at a time. And so my pastor took me over there and let me watch them tell people about Jesus. Well, then the next week, I couldn't wait to go back, and I began to tell people about Jesus. And the first week I went, there was this guy had been in prison, and he had come out, and he had repented in prison, but there had been no change in his life, and he really wanted to follow Jesus. So, man, I'm praying with this guy, and this guy gets saved, and I'm just wow, what just happened, you know? And I went back the next Saturday and I got to pray with three or four other people and, and they wanted to accept Jesus. And so I was speaking to people over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait a minute. So I can go over here on Saturday morning and change eternity for somebody every Saturday morning for the rest of my life. And I was like, sign me up. And so I started going. And so the more I went, the more excited I got. And then I started asking them if I could start discipling these guys. And, and so we started doing that. I began to work with guys that were violent offenders that come out of prison. And I started discipling these guys. And, and so I began to, to live a very different lifestyle because I'd been given this opportunity to serve the Lord. At the same time, now you've got to realize that's all. That, that, that's, a, that's not an uncommon experience for your typical evangelical Christian. For those on fire for God, I know a lot of them, that, that, that's what they do all the time, all ages, 
On the other side of the coin, I began to pursuing something that as a young Christian I was seeking that you guys will probably relate to more than what I shared before. And that was the kingdom of God. Ever since I was 16 years old and he'd gotten saved, I used to take my Bible out and I would come to school because, you know, I'm a 16 year old kid, so I'd go to the other high school kids and I'd go, Look up, if Jesus keeps talking about this kingdom of God, he talks about it all the time. What's the kingdom of God? Oh, it's when you go to heaven. I'm like, I don't think so. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's about going to heaven because he, he doesn't talk about going to heaven. And, and so then I'd, I'd ask somebody else, I'd say, What's this about? And, it, and he'd say, Oh, that was for the Jews. You know, the Jews were supposed to do these certain things. And, and I'd ask somebody else about it. And everybody had something they would tell me, but you could tell everybody was like just taking a shot in the dark. Nobody really understood what the kingdom of God was. I got all kinds of it. Uh, and uh, so I was always on this pursuit, and I never got a satisfactory answer. Well, here I am now. I'm, at, you know, I'm 50 years old now, and I'm still thinking, I'm still puzzled. You know, here I am telling people to pray this prayer or to repent and be sorry you're a sinner and to, uh, to come and uh, uh, believe in Jesus and get saved. But I said, but in the Bible, they're always preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Not the good news of how to get saved and go to heaven. And I said, I, I don't know how to reconcile the two. And I knew we had a problem in this world because we call people to get saved and Jesus called people to come and follow Him. We call people to get saved so they can go into heaven. And Jesus called people to be a disciple, to give up everything, hate their mother, father, sister, and brother, take up their own cross and come and follow me. And so I thought, well, wait a minute, my message is different. And then people were always saying, if you knew guys that were in the ministerial role, particularly in the evangelical church, they wonder why people weren't committed anymore. And uh, like they used to be, there was this euphemistic good old days, you know, back when people did this. I don't know if those people ever really existed, but this is what I kind of found out was, is that when you ask people to get saved just so they can get a ticket to heaven, it doesn't really require anything to do that. In fact, they did exactly what you told them to do. I led a guy to the Lord in college one time, and he was a big beer-drinking, barrel-chested guy. He was actually the New Jersey State wrestling champion. And uh, his parents were ridiculously rich. He was there in college. He was going to school to be an FBI agent of all things. And he's across the hall, and I'm always telling him about Jesus. I just want him to get saved. I just want him to go to heaven. So he, without me, goes to some revival somewhere, comes back and says, well, I got saved. <coughs> I'm like, praise the Lord, Greg. He says, yeah, I went down, repented all my sins, asked Jesus to come into my heart, and so now I'm a Christian. Praise the Lord. I said, man, come on. I want to go to Bible study. I want you to grow in the Lord. And he said, nope. I said, wait a minute. I said, yeah, man, you're going to be great. You know, you'll learn how to pray and all this stuff. He said, nope. And I said, well, don't you want to? And he says, look, man, you told me that if I did this, my salvation would be assured and I'd go to heaven. And he said, well, yeah. And he says, I did it. Close the dorm room door. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I mean, that's the beginning. And he said, that's not what you said. You told me I just needed to pray and just need to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and everything. And I've done that. And so I knew there was a critical problem because I saw that at 17 years old when I led somebody to the Lord. He had no commitment to the Lord. He just done what it took to get saved. And so there's this problem out there. There's this disconnect. So in the early church and in early Christianity, they're willing to go to their graves. They're willing to be burned alive, crucified upside down. And we can't get them to come to church in the rain. <laughs> 
there's something wrong. They preach a different gospel. They preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, and we preach a gospel many times, and I'm speaking about my evangelical background more than anything else, but you guys all know that even in kingdom communities, when it comes to evangelism, there's a bunch of us saying a lot of the same things. You know, I've talked to, I go around and speak to Mennonite churches all over the United States, and I've had brothers say, man, we don't know how to go out and lead somebody to Jesus. So we go to the same stuff the evangelicals do. How many of you ever heard of, of anybody going to a, a program called Evangelism Explosion? And it's, and it's a great program to get people to talk about Jesus and lead people to the Lord. Here's, here's your punchline in Evangelism Explosion. Yes, I've been. And so here's the deal. If you were to die today, and you're standing before God, and God was to say to you, what? Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? to say. And then that's your segue to begin telling them how to become a Christian and everything. Of course, the first thing that, 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 that became apparent to me when I went to this class when they set this scenario up, when they said, okay, you're standing before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? I went, stop right there. And I said, I got this Bible over here. He don't ever say that. It's a great question that God never says. It's a great method that Jesus never used. It's wonderful stuff. It's just not in the Bible. If it's so great and we use it everywhere we go all the time, then why didn't Jesus or Paul or Peter ever think it was a good enough idea to actually use themselves? It's because that's not what they preached. And so I was looking at these things, and so I, at one level I'm going out and I'm leading all these people to the Lord, and my life's been, been turned upside down because I want to tell people about Jesus instead of living for myself. And on the other level I'm going... Man, this kingdom of God thing is very different than what we think it is. And I ran across a book. Some of you guys may have read David Brousseau's The Upside Down Kingdom. Now, I had ordered every book I could get. I mean, I'm serious. I got a stack of kingdom books at home like this big. And I'd really go, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. That makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, I mean, I couldn't get five chapters into most of it. And then I get this Brousseau book, and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. And then I start reading a few of his others, and I realize, wow, this is, this is different. This guy actually is talking about something none of the other guys were talking about, and that was actually following Jesus. And so anyway, so I began to understand and grasp the kingdom of God. I began to disciple these guys in a different way. But I still didn't know how to present the gospel in a different way. And I'm going to talk about that in the second part of our meeting today after I show you the slides. But I, I just wanted to tell you one story so you can understand that God just brought me to a place combining these two directions of mine. One being the evangelical, wanting to tell everybody about Jesus and get them saved. And the other beginning to grasp and understand the kingdom of God. So I'd been inside this meeting one time, and we were doing this give away the groceries and witness to somebody. And I'd led to this lady named Juanita to the Lord. And Juanita prayed, and, and it happened to be the week before Thanksgiving, very similar to this time of the year. And we'd given a whole bunch of groceries. They got like five, six, seven bags of groceries. And they had frozen turkeys in hand. People are very generous in America. It's just stunning what people will do for people truly in need here. Just praise God for it. And so uh, it was, the meeting was over, and we always we prayed with all these people. And, and so when the meeting was over, I got ready to go outside. I was the last one to leave that day. I literally was locking the building up. And the parking lot was empty, and Juanita was sitting there. And all of the girls, she's like, well, Anita, what are you doing here? And she says, well, you and I sat inside praising the Lord for so long about receiving the Lord and being saved. She said, all my friends I rode with left me behind. 
And she said, y'all gave us so many groceries that we couldn't all get in the car with the groceries anyway. She said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, where do you live, Juanita? She said, well, I live about six or seven miles from there. And so uh, I didn't know what to do. So I said, well, look, I'll just take you home, which I'd been forbidden to do because this was in the hood. You know, it's not safe for you to be there. And, uh, but anyway, I'm making disciples there. Everybody in my discipleship group has been in prison for violent crime anyway. So, you know, pretty much being safe was thrown away out a long time ago. So anyway, so I go over to get my car. And, and uh, so I bring my car over and there's only a big problem. You see, I had spent about 10 years seeking the American dream. So all I did was work before I got into this thing of sharing telling people about Jesus. So I worked 70, 80, 90, and 100 hours a week. I published four magazines. I owned a restaurant for my daughter. I had a telecom IT company where we, we uh, serviced over 2,000 locations around America for the service master company. And I owned an executive placement service, which is like a high-powered employment uh, uh, agency for rich guys. When the, when the guy leaves the bank and he gets his golden parachute, remember when all the banks were buying each other and all these execs were losing their job? They lose their job, you know, a half a million dollars in cash and, you know, their full retirement and, you know, a million dollars in stocks or whatever the, the golden parachute thing might be. But so those guys all go home and they're all happy and they play golf about six months and then they're all looking for a job because they're bored to death and they would come to us and we teach them how to find a job. So that's what I did and I worked all the time. Uh, I worked constantly all the time, and so uh, I had began to realize that working all the time wasn't God's plan for me. I'm reading about the kingdom of God, seek the kingdom of God first. It's more valuable than, than anything. It's like a treasure in the field, and I'm leading all these people to Christ, but both of these things were going this direction, and my whole life was geared towards something else, and that was making money and 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 pursuing the american dream i was real good at pursuing the american dream for the second time in my life you know i had become uber successful and so anyway so i'm telling you that because of what happens next so uh my values are changing you know I, i'm in turmoil i'm understanding the kingdom i'm understanding this new value system from god i'm leading all these people to christ it's like coming together you know like a collision course and in the middle is glenn chasing money you know, you can't do all of this stuff at the same time, right? And so what happens is I go over and I get my car. And, and I know this sounds, Glenn, what are you leading up to here? So I go get my car, and my car is a mid-engine Porsche. And one of these got seven bags of groceries. So I, I, I hit the button, and the roof comes down, and I open the back trunk. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those, but the, the back trunk probably holds about ten of these. So we, we lay a bag, of, we dump some cans in the back of the sack, and, you know, and we shut the back trunk. We go in the front, and it's strategically designed to hold a guy one uh, thing of golf clubs. So you open it up, and we put two bags in there, and we shut it, and then we're still sitting there, you know, with like four bags of groceries. So Juanita gets in, and we pack groceries around her, and then I get in, and I put groceries in my lap. And I get in my Porsche, and I fire it up. You know, you've seen the Porsche commercial. There is no substitute. <laughs> and I'm going through the hood with groceries everywhere, you know, driving through there. And I drive, and I get out, and I go inside Juanita's house, and we sit on the front porch, and we drink tea, and we, uh, and we uh, uh, spend some time together just fellowshipping. She lived in a, in a very poor neighborhood in, in a bad area. And so I went back, and I got my car, and I started driving away. And I came to the stop sign, and I froze where I was at, and I began to weep. And I realized how stupid this car was. 
I couldn't even take some widows home and carry them in their groceries because I'd lived my life in such a way. I was so self-centered. This was my dream car that I'd always wanted all my life. I wanted a black Porsche convertible mid-engine car so I would be the cool guy. That's who I wanted to be. But now God had changed things to where my, my greatest dream was I'd wake up and I'd look forward all week for Saturday so I could go tell somebody about Jesus and I could lead them and change all of eternity. And I understood the kingdom of God that you had to give up everything and come and follow Jesus. That God calls us to make disciples. That God calls us in this kingdom to seek it first that nothing else mattered. That someday I would stand before God and God would say, either well done or depart from me based on what I did in the kingdom of God. And I sat there and I realized I live a, such a selfish life that I can't even help anybody because of the way I structured my life. Everything in my life was about the American dream. I just had that Jesus bumper sticker stuck on the back of it. I was doing everything for me. And so I realized then I could not seek first the kingdom of God. I could not make disciples unless I blew my life up. Unless I blew my life up. So I blew my life up. Sold the businesses, got out of everything, liquidated everything, took a, took a lesser job, and this freed me up to make disciples. I began to make disciples. And then my, I tell everybody at this point, my pastor played a trick on me. He invited me to a short-term mission trip, and I said, that's got to be the stupidest waste of money in the world. You want me to spend $3,000 to fly to, in this case, Africa, and I'm going to go over there. I don't speak the language. I don't know the culture. Those people don't know me from Adam. This has got to be the dumbest thing you can do. The answer is no. And, uh, and he said, well, would you just pray about it? I'm like, that's a waste of time. And he said, just pray about it. So I went back to my home, and I said, okay, God. My pastor wants me to ask you about going to Africa. I know you don't want me to go, but, you know, he's my pastor, so I'm doing what he says. So, Lord, I, in case he asks you, I ask. Okay, and so I went about my deal. Pastor, a few days later, he goes, So, did you pray about going out? Sure did. And he's like, So, did God say anything? Not a peep, just like I knew he would, you know. And he says, Well, okay, you still praying? I says, Well, no. No answer means no. You know, sometimes not answering somebody means no, you know. So, no, I didn't answer. He says, I want you to keep praying about it. And I go, What's the point in that? I know God doesn't want me to go. He said, Just keep praying about it. So every day I get up in the morning and say, Lord, Jeff wants me to pray about going to Africa. I know you don't want me to Africa. I'm just doing it for Jeff, just to appease and, and honor my pastor. So, Lord, now let's pray about the important stuff. And so I pray about my stuff and I get up and go to my wife and pastor. Did you pray about it? Oh, yeah. Praying about it all the time now, pastor. You know, God's not interested in this whole project. So. Anyway, then one day I get up. Lord, I know you don't want me to go to Africa. Just praying this for Jeff. Just wanted to run it by you one more time. And I'll get up and I'm going and I get back to the living room and I just heard in my heart of hearts like, you know, the loudest thing in the world with that could be the sound. I heard, I'm waiting on you in Africa. And of course then I immediately went to full bore theological mode. God, of course, is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's waiting for me in Africa. He's waiting for me in India. While he's waiting for me next to my coffee pot in the kitchen, even right now, because God's everywhere. Well, that doesn't work. You know, God doesn't really care about theology as much as we think he does. And so, next time my pastor asked me, I told him, I said, yeah. Yeah, I heard from God, and he's waiting for me in Africa. And he's like, I knew it. 
and he gets all excited, so I actually go. But when I went, I went with a big group of people, and I had a totally different experience than they did. Because, you know, they were all people that were supposed to be missionaries. They were all going into missionary school. They were young people. They were going to Bible college and Bible seminary, and they want to be missionaries. You know, here I am. I'm, I'm a publisher and a, a, a bit, you know, restaurant owner. And, but the difference was is they were going to get experience in the field, and I'd been sent there because God was waiting there. And so when I walked off the tarmac, they ran down the staircase, oh, excited, we get to, you know, we're going to get to do mission work, yay, yay, yay. And I'm standing on my suitcase going, die, guys, at the bottom of these stairs. <laughs> I mean, you don't go running down when God's at the bottom of the stairs, you know, you're kind of. You know, what's this thing about? God, man, I'm going to tell you, as I walked across the tarmac, the Holy Spirit came over me unlike it had in many, many years of my life. And uh, I went on, and I won't go into details here today because we don't have time, but I had a very different experience than they had. You know, they were having a ball and all this stuff, and man, God opened my heart and eyes, and I saw people going without food, and I saw people naked, and I saw people living in mud and manure huts. And it just broke my heart. Now, they, they'd done mission trips everywhere, and they were just used to this stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And uh, so I went through. I got a chance to lead Muslims to Christ, which I'd never met a Muslim before. And, uh, and I began to, uh, uh, to bear an amazing amount of fruit in about 10 days. And God was just moving everywhere. Even my pastor Jeff, who went with me, we were out jogging one morning, and he looked at me and he says, it's like you're on a different mission trip. And I said, I know. He said, it's like you're not even experiencing what they're experiencing. You're in this other thing you're doing. I said, I know. And he said, what are you going to do when you get back to America? And I said, I don't know. So I got back, and everybody's like, how did it go? How did it go? And everybody's like, oh, we did this, we did that. And, and I'm their last man, I said, uh, I don't know what to tell you. And they're like, what do you mean you don't tell us? I heard y'all y'all, y'all shared over here and then a bunch of people got saying you shared over here. And I said, yeah, all that happened. It's all that other stuff. And then I began to tell them other things that happened. And so anyway, so I, I came back and Jeff said, what are you going to do? And I said, he said, I think you need to pray again. And, I, and so I said, I will. And I began to pray. And the first time I prayed, I walked back into that same living room and I heard the voice of God say, when I asked him, what do I do now? What you send me there for? What do I do with me now? And God said, I'm waiting for you now. And I went, holy smokes. <laughs> I thought that was for the short-term trip. But I was so happy when I came back because after I saw what I saw and, and, and had an opportunity to do what I did for those 17 days, I realized I could never go back to my life the way it was. That I was basically, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how to put this in words, I was undone. I was, Glenn was finished. I could no longer go on living the way I was. So, what am I doing in this picture? Well, I've been over there 10 years now. Uh, I'm not quite as young as I was. I didn't go over there as a young man. And now I work with some primitive tribes. Some of my people are Maasai like these are. Um, Barak and his wife and children there. Uh, Baraka, when he came to work, uh, came to, to my shama. I, I, I actually brought him there to take care of my goats. I actually hired Baraka, and he became a Christian. But 
when I brought Baraka there, he was so primitive that literally he is. I had a little wooden house I lived here, and he walked in and shut the door. I showed him where some things were that he was going to need, and he got ready to leave, and he walks over to the door, and he looks at it, and he goes, and he looked at me. He'd never opened the door with a handle or a doorknob. And so I walked over and opened the thing. I walked outside, so I thought, well, uh oh, I better give him the tour of the farm. So I took him around, and I said, Here's where we go to the bathroom, Baraka, because I knew they went to the bathroom wherever they were, because, you know, they follow herds, right? And so I, you know, opened the door to our little outhouse, and I showed him where to go to the bathroom, and I opened the door to where we bathe, and I showed him, you know, there's a bucket we bathe out of. There's the hole in the floor. It goes into the same place the toilet goes into. Well, the next day, I'm, I'm, I'm inside my house, and everybody's yelling and screaming and come outside, and they're yelling at Baraka. I said, what's wrong? He says, you're not going to believe what he did. I said, what did he do? And they opened the door to the bathroom. And of course, the, the, the outhouse had a little porcelain place where you went to the bathroom. Well, I wasn't very specific. So he just went to the bathroom in the middle of the floor. Because when you're out in the bush and you got to go to the bathroom, you, you just kind of stop and go to the bathroom. And then you keep going. And so I realized, whoa, this is a little beyond what I thought here as far as that goes. You can stop and pick up somebody, a, a widow be going down the road with a big bag of goods and she needs to go to the store and you stop and say, yeah, you can get in. And she'll, take her, uh, she'll take her stuff and she'll put it down and she starts pushing on the vehicle. She has no earthly idea how to open a car door. So what we're talking about is a little different level of, uh, they're not Westerners to say the least when you're off in the bush. But I love every one of them. So this is Brock and his wife. I'm just going to take you there. This is a this is a typical house a Maasai would live in. It's a round house. It's made out of manure, and um, and also out of uh, dirt. And then we have a thatched roof on it. That some of my neighbors live that way. This is a picture of just a group of houses. This would be called a shamba. A shamba is a family-owned farm. So the 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 lead the, a man and his four or five sons and maybe. Four or five wives who live here, they're polygamous. This is them uh, actually repairing a house. I was doing house church in this house and they were repairing a house church out there. This is a very desolate area called Kia. Uh, I also have people in my ministry that have fled radical Islam in other countries. This is Asif, his wife, Kunwal, and his children. Uh, their mother was leading Muslims to Christ in Pakistan. Uh, to such an extent that uh, the government literally threw her in jail. You know, it's against the law in Pakistan. It's an Islamic country for Christians to lead Muslims to Christ. And so anyway, uh, they lined up uh, another missionary, got them out of Pakistan and got them to Tanzania. And then, but they were, uh, uh, the, the, the people that had helped them were into the prosperity gospel. And they had happened to meet some people from our organization and realized They'd never heard people talk about this kind of Christianity. Because in Pakistan, the people are in Christianity, and you're going to find in most of the third world, it, everybody's into this prosperity gospel thing. Get rich with Jesus. It's everywhere. And so anyway, when they heard us talk about following Jesus, making disciples and all these things, it, it resonated with them because, you know, they had paid the ultimate price in Pakistan. They had lost everything to follow Jesus. And then they landed in Tanzania, and it was like getting a lottery ticket, seeing if you could win a prize going to church every Sunday, you know. And so uh, so they realized there was something wrong, so they wound up uh, having me come to Dar Salaam, which was 14 hours for me by my motorcycle ride. 
and I would teach them like three times a year. And on about the third time, they came to visit me where I live and lived in my house with me for about a week. Went back home and called, can we, and asked me if they could please leave this type of Christianity they were in, and I would show them how to be and make disciples. So I brought them up there along with our other family, and this is Rahil and his family, and I brought the mother too. I just don't have a picture of her up here. Uh, but anyway, uh, Rahil does evangelism among the Sikhs, Hindus, and Muslims. He's a gifted evangelist. His brother, I see, is, is a quieter, more technical guy. He handles our books and all our technical issues and everything. And his wife um, is very gifted in leading the women. We live a very gender-separate uh, community. In other words, even husband and wives in our culture wouldn't sit together. So the men would sit over here, the women sit over here. I mean, it's not so unconscious you would be, you'd be a bad guy because you're on the wrong side. But you would just naturally not mix. So as a result, we not only have to disciple our men to make disciples, but if you ever want to lead a woman to Christ, we have to disciple our women to lead the women to come to Christ. Uh, you know, if you read in the in uh, Paul's letters, you know, in one of his letters in particular, you know, he goes through and he gives all the requirements for a deacon, he gives all the requirements for an elder, and then he goes and he gives all these requirements for a widow, and they're like harder than the deacons. You know, and, and you realize, like, what's he talking about? Just to get food and everything? And uh, and if you listen to Bersot's books, is that, is that what he talks about there is the widow in the church was like a women's office. They didn't have anything to do with the men. They didn't teach the men. They didn't lead the men. But there were women that were leaders among the women, and they were called the widows. And so anyway, that's why she's got requirements harder than the deacons and the same as the elders or bishops in this thing. Because there's very high standards to be a leader in the early church. And, uh, and so anyway, so we have to have women that are very committed, dedicated, and can make disciples of the other women. It's totally inappropriate in our culture for a man to... Uh, uh, to share with a woman, a woman to share with a man, and certainly if you're believing somebody to confess sins, a man and woman would never talk about sin in each other's life. Uh, I used to do a lot, I just put this in there because I used to do a lot of work in Kenya in the refugee camps. I wrote an article one time, this picture went with it, it was called My, My Sister Wears a Burqa, but I had all these uh, women I was working with, these are all Somalis, and, uh, and uh, we had a lot of Somali refugees that we had led to the Lord. These are three women in full burqa. Uh, they would wear the burqa because then they could come to house church meeting and nobody knew who they were. And then they'd throw all that stuff off and we'd have church. And then they'd cover back up and slip back off into the crowd. So I always loved burkas because it was like the perfect disguise when you're a Christian uh, meeting in a, in a radically Muslim area. You talk about blending in and disappearing. It protected our women from getting caught all the time. Because when they got caught, they killed them. And then these are two brothers here over the side uh, that we had. We, but this is actually in a little apartment that I had in Nairobi at the time. And we were just having a house church meeting. But I used to work with a lot of, uh, a lot of people from the Islamic community. One thing I'll, I'll tell you guys is 30% of my ministry and our ministry in Africa uh, are, are Muslims we've led to Christ. 40% of my leaders are all formerly from Islam. So uh, it's, it's very fertile ground. Muslims are looking for uh, people to tell them about Jesus everywhere I go. Most people just are afraid to. By the way, I don't argue with people from Islam. I don't do apologetics. I tell them the good news of the kingdom of God. I, I'm not interested in, in doing apologetics with Muslims. If you want to argue, you're not my person of peace. You're not the one God has for me. I move on to the next person. 
and uh, I'll explain that a little bit later. We do a lot of work with widows. I, I'm going to tell you guys something. You'll understand this a little better later on. But, you know, the first problem that ever was in the church was uh, that's ever listed was because the apostles were spending their time waiting on tables for widows. The first office that anyone was ever given in the church was a deacon outside of the apostles when they had to assign men to make sure widows got taken care of. So when Jesus talks about the least of these, He talks about the naked, the hungry, the thirsty, those in prison, and these kind of things. He doesn't mention widows, but He's teaching them to take care of the disenfranchised and the least of these are brothers among them. But the first group we see them working with the apostles personally after being personally trained with Jesus, the people they singled out in their first helps ministry was with us. So I decided that Jesus trained them good and they know what they're doing. And so when I went there and I saw widows being disenfranchised, I began to work with widows as well. And so uh, I, I, we feed every, uh, we provide food and housing for widows, about 200 of them every single month. This is an example of the conditions I find some of them living in. In our culture, when the father dies, the grandfather dies, whatever, uh, the oldest son gets everything and then he decides how to divvy it out and he never decides mama needs anything. Because the way it is in our culture in Tanzania, she's in the what? He's got his wife and kids, his brother's got their wife and kids, she's part of another guy's wife and kids and he's gone. She has nothing to contribute. She's nothing but a consumer. And sometime within one to ten years, two years, they're going to either sell all the land around her or they're going to kick her off before then. I know this sounds terribly cruel, but this is the culture that we're in. So I am surrounded by abandoned widows. Uh, I have found widows being starved to death by their own family. When they get a little out of brain, they'll just starve them to death so they'll go away. And basically we rescue these. This is an actual house of one. These are some examples. Actually, my house looks just like that one. I just have a front door. <laughs> uh, my mother's lived poor among the poor, reached the poor. So we live just like they do. I live in the exact same conditions. It's just that, um, uh, you know, I, I have cardboard on the inside of my house so the wind doesn't blow in, and they don't. That's about it. And I also uh, catch water off my roof uh, and fill up a water barrel, which is a little innovative for them. Uh, this is actually a little store. This is a widow there. This is a little store we started and set her in business. So we also train widows to take care of themselves. Uh, this is a widow's home. I don't know why I put this picture in there. I was went to visit uh, uh, one of our widows, and these are actually elephant tracks leading up to her house during the rainy season. We live so much in the midst of the animals where I live at the elephants come and eat our corn. And it's pretty bad. Uh, this is uh, just one of my neighbors. I, I just went to visit her one day. Her, her son says she's 107. I just thought it'd be cool to have a 107 year old lady's picture. These are just various widows. I'm just going to go through them. This is a widow. We, you can see her house in the background. It, it was falling in on her, and so we built her a house. This is our widow's day. I mean, excuse me, we also do mission trips. People like yourselves would come over, and we let you experience and do some of the things we're doing in some of our work. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. These are just a, a widow that very young widow that her husband died and you know we brought her kids in and uh, as you can see their uniforms were tore up for school and we got her in a house this is just a group of widows that showed up uh, one day that we're trying to help this is just an example of some of them there's my my goat my goat stall in the background I just love this picture this just gives you a little insight in the inside of the houses 
got their produce piled up everywhere. As you can see, I said I had cardboard up in mine so the wind doesn't blow in. As you see, they don't. We also have a school. Uh, I have a, a school that teaches adult literacy. Uh, no Maasai women are ever sent to school, so none of them know uh, how to read. You see the lady in the bald head there, the Maasai women shave their head because the insect problems are so bad when you live in cattle dung all the time that uh, they consider all hair on the body as being filthy because of bed bugs and lice and things like this. So, so, uh, so none of the Maasai women have ever been to school, so this is the first chance they have to learn to read and write. We want to let them do that so they can learn to read their Bibles. And then these are women from various tribes. There's Chaga, Mareru, Wairusha, and different tribes there. And I just took a picture of them in class. This one's funny to me because uh, she, this, uh, our sister up there was doing the alphabet. She made a mistake and realized I was filming her. And she's so embarrassed, she's covering herself, running off laughing. All the other women are howling, laughing at her. They have a ball. They just have a ball learning. This, uh, we also grow produce. I uh, have a farm. And we grow produce on the farm. Uh, like I said, I feed about 200 widows once a month. We provide food, grain, corn, maize, and all this kind of stuff for them. So I, I, I have quite a bit of uh, uh, garden vegetables on there. A guy bought us a tractor this year. I'm so excited about having a tractor now. It's really funny, guys. I'm kind of a city guy, as you might imagine, being a publisher now. My little brother, uh, his wife's family, huge farmers over in Arkansas. And so his dream, you know, is he always loved going over there during harvest season, riding the tractors and stuff. I sent this picture to him and I said, who would ever thought, here we are in 60-something years old, I'm the guy with the tractor. And you know, you're working in high-rises down in Memphis and everything, but we had a guy in America bought us a tractor. It's been a life changer for us. You'll see why in just a minute. We also give goats to the widows. They all know how to raise livestock. Uh, we have a program, we call it Goats for Grannies. And uh, it's a source of milk, source of revenue as they multiply. And, uh, and it also gives them status. Uh, owning goats is, is kind of a status thing. People would look and say, she's not an old, useless, destitute old lady. She's got goats. And, I, and in an agrarian society, that's good. Having a cow, you're like, you're the man. you got a cow. You see what I'm saying? But we're subsistent farmers. 90% of us uh, farm a couple of acres of land. Only 10% of us have a job or work in a city. It's a real poor country, one of the poorest countries in the world that's not at war in famine. You know, in other words, without a disaster, yeah, the country's in disaster. We're pretty much at the bottom of the barrel. It's just a bunch of widows there. We're getting ready to pass out food and share the gospel with them. That's my personal favorite goat. His name's Mr. Trump. Uh, if you'll notice, he's got a red beard under here, and what you can't see is his head's turned. He has another shock of hair over there. He loves to get up on his hind legs and charge everybody, and then when he acts like he's just going to kill you, he runs up to you and he puts his feet down and he lays his head and I used to be pegged like a cat. So. Anyway, he's my pet, so I always got to put Mr. Trump up there. We, uh, I, I was up to about 2,200 chickens, uh, but there's a life cycle on chickens, so at two and a half years they start laying less. It's not worth keeping them for feed costs. So at that point, so we raise a bunch of chickens and we give everybody eggs, we sell eggs, and it, sells, it, 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 it provides for itself through the egg sales. But then once they peak out, rather than replace them this time, we decided that we were going to uh, basically give away about 15, 1,400 chickens. And so this is just some of the wood that's getting chicken. Uh, this is the inside of one of my chicken houses. I have, uh, I have four of these. Uh, each side over there can hold about 600 birds. Just another one of the widows we help. That's just me preaching the widows. We also do wound care. I'll go by there. That's kind of gruesome. 
Uh, we also do wound care. There are a lot of people in our area that have been, that first one you saw that was so graphic, it burnt with chemical burns from spraying in coffee plantations. And so what we learned was is these people's legs get infected. There's a super high rate of amputation where we live because we don't have very good medicine. Uh, people get their legs uh, amputated for snake bites, all this kind of stuff. So we found a ministry of going out and doing wound care. So I personally learned how to treat wounds on people, uh, bed sores, wounds, and all that kind of stuff. And we went around and began to do this, and it's probably become the most life-changing thing for the community that I work in that, that we've ever done. Not only did we save people's lives that were going through this, but people came up and they would literally go, why are you doing this? This guy's wound stinks, he's dirty, he's dying anyway, why are you doing this? And we got to share with them about Jesus and the kingdom of God, and people couldn't believe it, and then they would tell us about other people that needed wound care, and then they would watch us go, and then I trained other people to do it, and now we've got five people doing it all the time. And then what happened is, from this thing, we're the only people who cares about the least of these in our whole community. We're out feeding the widows nobody wants. We're saving the widows nobody wants. We're saving the ones their families are personally starving on purpose, so they're basically murdering them. So we go get them and we save those. We're doing the room care and things in the food program. So what's happening is people go, this isn't the same Christianity that we're used to seeing. So these guys are going out two by two telling about Jesus and expanding the kingdom of God. And at the same time, they're taking care of all these people that are at the absolute bottom of the economic scale. This is a Christianity we've never seen before. And as a result, almost everywhere we go and do wound care, we either lead people to Christ, but just as likely we lead so many to Christ in that area that we plant a house church there when we go. Jesus said, let your works be such. Do your works in such a way that men will see them and glorify God in heaven. You know, we've been scared away by the evangelical. Oh, God hates your good works. God don't like good works. Uh, you, you know, anytime you do good work, you're trying to earn your way to heaven. Well, not according to Jesus. Jesus said, do your works in such a way that you're like a city on a hill, that you're like a light sitting up on a bush. We don't do things to be seen by the world, but we go out and obey Jesus. And when we do, we're going to people no one else wants to serve. And they go, this is a different gospel. This is a different form of Christianity we've never seen this before and people are drawn to it and they know if there's a good God if there's a God in heaven He cares and loves us this is the kind of thing you would do and I'm, I'm going to go through these kind of quick because we've got kids in here but uh, we, uh, we do a lot of wound care I'm not going to talk about that and we also have some children that uh, uh, mentally retarded children are cast aside disabled children are cast aside so we don't we go get them and rescue them I also bring dentists. Now, y'all pay attention to this picture. I love this picture. This is Mama Melissa. Um, and that's her. And we brought a bunch of dentists, and they kind of had a relationship with her. And then they went home, and, uh, and they uh, raised the money to get her some dentures. So that's her before, and that's her now. And so, as you might imagine, after we did that, and some of our other widows have seen that, I, I could go in the denture business tomorrow because everybody comes and, and wants, uh, wants to have their mouth fixed. This is elephantitis. It's a, it's a disease that we treat. Very easy to treat, extremely easy. The swelling and the toes look like they're rotting off and everything. It's something that I, I can absolutely reverse that in two weeks of seeing somebody about three times a week. This is a child I tried to save, I couldn't save. Our parents starved her on purpose. 
I intervened on several occasions. We brought her and fed her. We had the parents coming and feeding her at our place. She did not starve for lack of food. She starved because the parents decided they had enough kids in there. It's a little autistic boy. People always say, Clint, do you mind if the kids are in church? And I said, huh. I preach with this guy on my hip at least once a month. I mean, he won't turn you loose. He's, he, he does everything at the wrong time, so kids don't bother me. And it's just a young lady who has AIDS. Uh, this is a, a house we built for Alicia, the lady with the teeth, by the way. Uh, this is just more wound care. That's a, just another guy that needs his arm amputated. That's actually a picture I took to raise money to amputate his arm. We work with a lot of guys that have amputated limbs. As you can see, this limb is, is uh, all broken up, needs to be replaced. We're really blessed that the Lutherans in our area opened up a facility just to do artificial limbs. And so we formed a relationship with them. And so we bring people down there all the time and they make limbs for people all the time. We, we must have done eight or 10 people this year. There's a young man being fitted. A wall had fallen in on his leg. He's a very hardworking young guy, very skilled. And, uh, and he had to have his land amputated. This is a guy who follows me on Facebook. Anybody follow me on Facebook? Do y'all, any of you ever remember, I did a thing one time and I talked about, it's a very short clip, you can go back on my Facebook page and find it, it's probably from a month ago. But I tell a story about this guy, this is him, and, I, and all I say in the video, he says, I don't know how you get to church. I don't know how you came to church but I said, this guy, I had driven him as close as I could get him. He can't walk. He put shoes on his hands. You see his right hand there, he's got flip-flop on there. And I said, sometimes in Africa, when you want to go to church, crawl. And I actually have this guy filmed crawling and dragging his body to church. So the next time you uh, just kind of decide if you want to go to church, I want to let you know I got widows that walked five and six miles, and I got men that dragged themselves by their hands to come to church. Oh, we fixed his vehicle. He had this little vehicle. Somebody had borrowed it from him and wrecked it, and we got it all fixed up. And then here's the mission part, and I'm going to kind of close with this because we run out of time, guys. Uh, what time is it now? It's already after 11. Am not supposed to stop by now? Let me just wrap up with this just because I want to give you an invitation. Uh, we're doing this in two parts, Sunday school and then church. So anyway, I'm going to wrap up with this part, though. I have a lot of friends that like to come to Africa and help us. And I want to let you guys know that if y'all want to partner with us and actually take part in some of the things we're doing, that people like you and me, we come to Africa and help. And this is a lady who happens to be a heart doctor at the Veterans Hospital, a good friend of mine, Cherise Tooley. Her husband's also a surgeon. They come over about every other year. In fact, while we're sitting here talking, she's in the Ivory Coast right now doing the clinic. She's probably seen 100 people today while we're here working on blood pressure stuff. That's just medicines they brought. That's a team that we brought. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, wrong picture. That's a bunch of people I baptized the day before I left. <laughs> That's the team. There they are. Uh, these are all of them that came that year. Most of these are that you look at with the uniforms on. These are like med students, dental students. Uh, opticians, all these kind of skilled guys, but all the guys behind them are like us. They're not. And so, because you got to have somebody to hold the babies while their mama's getting their teeth pulled or operated on. We also try to let them have fun. So, I have this, I have some old beat up safari vehicles that we have in the bush. So, we actually, while they're there doing all these great things for the Lord, 
We actually say, hey, you've just came 8,500 miles. Let's make sure you get to see some animals or something while you're here. So I actually take them personally on safari. I live so close to the animals. This is about two miles from my house. I don't know if you can see that very good. I, I'm sorry, but I took it on a very cloudy day. It's just a giraffe. There's a pretty good herd of them. It's just right down the road from me, about two miles. Uh, these are wildebeest. I was actually out jogging, and these guys started jogging next to me, so I, I took a picture. I actually have a video of running, and there's like 100 wildebeest running on my right hand shoulder, and yes, they're very dangerous. You've got to watch the males in particular, uh, because if it's mating season or something, they just, they just attack it. So anyway, I thought that was kind of cool. I was jogging with wildebeest. Who knew? Uh, this is just an, uh, this is a national park next to me. I'm just on a ridge looking down when I took those guys on a little safari trip. And while they were there, this, we put these tents up. This gives you an idea how many people we were pulling their teeth that day. We pull hundreds and hundreds of teeth in a day. Uh, guys like me and you that aren't dentist doctors and this kind of stuff, we do the paperwork, record keeping, kind of do the triage, decide who needs to go where. There's tons of stuff to do. We also give testimony and share our faith with these things. Africans are very curious about, just like they're curious why I'm doing wound care, they want to know why you didn't come 8,000 miles to help them. So they want to hear your story of why you're there. So you're put in the situation getting to give your testimony a lot. Uh, and these are just the dentists working there, actually pulling teeth, more widows waiting. We have to feed you some exotic food while you're there, so we're getting ready to eat goat brains there. And, uh, and, but most of our time, we're, uh, men, we're making disciples, we're teaching. Uh, I want to go to one last thing here. That's just me discipling a bunch of people. I mean, uh, baptizing. Is we make disciples. These are all my guys that I disciple. So we let them to the Lord, we baptize them, and we train them so they go out and train other guys. And then I put them on these little uh, $900 motorcycles. I can put three guys on there and send them out to share their faith. That's a, uh, that's a little motorcycle that comes from uh, India. It's called a boxer. It's, that was a 125. Most of them I use are 150s. I know it says 150 on the tank, but we wrecked it, and I had to put one on. I couldn't find one that said 145. We wrecked all the things. But these are my guys. These are the guys I trained. I've led the Lord, and they're disciple makers themselves there. And we were having fun posing. That's just me preaching in a village. And then I'm just doing some Swahili training there and everything. So I'm going to stop there because I don't want to take too much time and let us uh, have a break and we can uh, we come back and we'll have the last part of our service.